Hello everyone, it's March 9th, 2021. So Rocket Lab is making a bigger and reusable rocket. Very cool. And we're going to talk about it. We also have Nicholas Trani of JPL on today's show. He's going to tell us about the terrain relative navigation system that got Percy safely on Mars. All right, let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 300 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. All right. So happy 300th episode. Happy 300th. <laughs> Yay. So this this isn't at all in celebration of our 300th episode, but I'm going to go ahead and pretend that it is. So uh, yeah, today, um, Destin from Smarter Every Day published a video that I understand has been in the works for a really, really long time. It features friend of the show, Logan Kennedy, um, who worked on... Um, uh, Mighty Eagle. And he talked to us about Mighty Eagle, um, a long time ago. And, um, uh, Destin was finally able to publish some footage of, uh, both of them checking out the actual hardware. Um, and it, it's, it's very cool. I got, um, about five or 10 minutes into the video, uh, before the show started, just while I was uh, doing other things. And I can't wait to go finish it. Cause it's, I mean, you, you know, Destin, like he does, um, he does a lot of in-person stuff in the way that we don't. Um, yeah. but he asks like all the same questions that we would and, and focuses on a lot of the same things <laughs> and is excited by the same details that we are. So it's always fantastic to, to see his videos and then to see him looking at a piece of hardware that, that we've talked about in the past. And, you know, I, seeing the video is just, it's so cool to go. Oh yeah. Right. I know that thing. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so there'll be a link in the show notes. But honestly, if you're not already subscribed to Smarter Every Day, what's wrong with you? I think everyone who listens to this is. I don't think anyone doesn't watch Smarter Every Day. Compare our Venn circles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. His recent series on, um, what was it? He spent some time on board a submarine, which is really interesting. And he made a series right. of videos with that. Right. I mean, mm. that, that was just you know, incredible. Like just the stuff you learn. And I don't know, that guy, he's just, he's on another level. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rocket Lab reveals Neutron, and it goes public, which is not a coincidence. So this I didn't see coming at all, but, uh, you know, I had always really hoped. Um, this is exactly the kind of thing that I kind of fantasized about because I was like, some other company uh, needs, to, needs to do something very cool with, you know, a reusable launch vehicle, and I think it should be Rocket Lab. And then, lo and behold, uh, there's a really cool YouTube video that you can watch where mm. Peter Beck first eats his hat which, uh, you know, because he had to do. Um, and then, you know, reveals that, in fact, they are building a new launch vehicle, a larger one, and it'll be debuting in 2024. Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically it's basically Soyuz, um, not in form factor, but in, in mass to orbit. Um, so, it, I mean, it's a really interesting segment of the market that they're targeting. You know, I mean, it's it's a small rocket in any other sense, but... You know, when you're thinking in terms of Rocket Lab, yeah, it's a it's a big freaking rocket. Yeah, it's medium lift rather than their little. Yeah. yeah. So from what Peter Beck had said, it seems as though this new launch vehicle is the result of wanting to make it, you know, like an initial public offering. But in order to do that, they had to basically make a better case for their place in the market. And they couldn't do that with such a small launch vehicle because things are kind of trending towards, you know, these very large constellations. And so they needed mm. a larger rocket. And then I guess from that, they said, well, why not make it reusable? 
reusable. I'm not sure what the thought process was there, but I mean, I totally commend them for that. So it kind of seems that these things, you know, like it, it kind of seems like one thing led to another, but I don't know. I feel like it was kind of waiting to happen because they're just such a cool company. And I kind of, I, I can't say I saw it coming, but I had always hoped. I don't know. I, so as far as the reusability goes, like is anybody, I mean, there are companies that are making that are still working on and developing expendable new launch vehicles, but they're all small lift ones, right? So like I, maybe just, you know, if you're going to make a big boy like this, you might as well, or a medium boy like this, then you might as well, you know, uh, design reusability into it from the start since, you know, it, this, this is a market that already has other sized, you know, things in there. You know what I mean? While everybody's trying to scramble into the small lift one, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm grab their piece of the pie so you could get away with expendability yeah exactly because i think if you're gonna i think as far as medium lift launch vehicles go it has to be reusable because that's what spacex is doing so you can't compete with their costs you know with something like this really i mean you can if you're being subsidized by some government i suppose but other than right, that right. not really so yeah that actually makes sense as to why you know this had to be reusable so i guess first we should talk a little bit about how it came to be and uh i'm going to throw out a new acronym that i learned i'm not familiar with it but basically um in order to go public they had to do something that apparently is a fairly common practice and it's one that's actually growing yeah like like over the past several decades apparently and this is called going for a spac which is a special purpose acquisition company which is basically a shell corporation or a shell company ish i mean i mean yeah that that's that's kind of what it is uh, and, and i think that that characterization has actually uh been more accurate in the past and is less accurate now spacs actually for a long time have been looked down upon as sort of a, a shady practice it's not a shell company unless you consider kickstarter to be a shell company basically what happens is a venture capitalist um, instead of taking a bunch of money and dumping it straight into a company, they go and ask other people to invest in a company that has not yet been determined. People buy shares of the SPAC, and then eventually the SPAC merges with uh, the company that it's actually going to invest in, and that company gets all of this, uh, all this money, and now suddenly they're publicly traded. A big part of that, too, is to avoid IPOs, which some mm -hmm. companies yeah. don't want to do off the top. Yeah, it's it's an alternate to an IPO because an IPO is is really tough where you have to go sell shares of your company to people um, before uh, you you go to the market. And so that can be really tough and really time consuming. And so a SPAC allows somebody else to do all that work ahead of time. The investors take on more risk because they don't know who they're investing in, but the uh, the payouts can be uh, can be bigger for the investors as well. So, you know, it's, it, it, and like I said, it's definitely been more accepted recently. There've been a couple of really big SPACs that, um, have kind of turned it into a more mainstream practice, but I, I don't, I don't think a shell company is the best way to just des to describe it. I mean, technically, yeah, it, it kind of, it kind of fits that description, but it, that's not, that's not really the, the actual mechanism that's going on here. It's a shell company waiting to be filled. How about that? <laughs> I mean, it's right? a Kickstarter. That's really what it is. It's like it's like if Kickstarter had a "I'm feeling lucky" button. Is kind of what it is. I kind of like your description, Dennis. Shell company waiting to be filled. That's an interesting Thank way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, and so this is something that actually other companies like uh, like Astra did, which I didn't know. But uh, so this is an interesting mm. way of you know generating capital, really, yeah. or you know investment. It's like a one-two punch in the news. Like mm -hmm. I don't think. Yeah. 
like you said, you hadn't heard of what a smack was, and I certainly hadn't until Astra, and that was uh, popped up in the news that they had, you know, were going to go public through, yeah, the similar mechanism. And that, that had to have been, what, a month ago? Not much more than that, uh, yeah, if even. Like that. It's, it's fun. Like, um, I really like the fact that, you know, these shares are a couple bucks a pop. And like, so now I, you know, I, I can't buy shares in, in SpaceX because they're not publicly traded. Um, but like I now own shares. Well, <laughs> when the mergers happen, <laughs> I will uh, own shares of, of Astro and Rocket Lab. And, you know, I think I put like 20 or $50 or something. I mean, it's like, it's, it's nothing, mm-hmm. but it, it feels very fun to, to say, yeah, I, I own part of two different rocket companies that I really like, yep. you know, <laughs> <laughs> that is cool. So invest in the, uh, the products and companies you like use and believe in. And so these, yeah, that's what they always the say, ones right? we talk yeah. about, <laughs> even if we don't use their services directly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's not good investment advice to tell somebody to invest in a rocket company. Um, like honestly, restaurants might be a safer investment, but yeah, I, I agree with <laughs> with your uh, with your spirit there because that's that's absolutely true. Yeah, I suppose the rocket company is about the worst thing you could invest in, really, because like, uh, what is it? They start with a large fortune and they end with a small one. Isn't that the old saying? <laughs> oh. Someone said that. I can't remember who coined that. I don't think it was Elon Musk, but someone will remind yeah. me. But anyway, well, heck, I mean, I mean, it, uh, Chris Kemp from Astra just did an interview, I think, with Space News. And he, uh, he was talking about how they, right now they're cranking out about a rocket every quarter. And he's like, that's, that's not going to change, uh, in 2021 because we're not ready to make more than that. We're still building our infrastructure. And he's like, we're working on a factory. And, you know, at one point we're really hoping to, to crank out a lot, but right now it's, you know, we're not increasing our, our construction cadence. And first off, like that is fantastic to hear from somebody that's that's like actual realism because everybody else says oh yeah we're gonna break you know 100 launches a day next quarter yeah um but uh kemp said um just talking about uh starting with a large fortune ending with a small one um he was talking about their construction technique and he's like yeah this isn't nearly as cool as um as doing a carbon fiber rocket and yeah it's not nearly as efficient it's a lot heavier and he said, but we don't care about efficiency. We care about producing the cheapest rocket we can that we can sell for the most money. Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm glad I gave them some money because <laughs> if you're going to invest in a rocket company, that's what you want to hear from the rocket company. Yeah. Yeah. Dave in the chat says the best way to become a millionaire in the rocket business is to start as a billionaire. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That, that yeah, was always yeah. the saying. Space is painful. So Neutron, it's tentatively scheduled to launch in 2024. That might be a little bit, you know, ambitious. I don't know. Partially reusable, just first stage. And uh, the mass to orbit, very similar to the Antares, actually. Uh, so that is 8,000 kilograms to Leo, 2,000 to the moon, and 1,500 to Mars. The dimensions are also very similar. It's like 40 meters tall, but that's, I think, a guess at this point. I don't know if that's official because there's no you know, real data. They just have a little render in it. You know, looks to be about the same size as, you know, in Antares and a 4.5 meter fairing, which is pretty large. Like that's pretty massive. I mean, it's, it's bigger than the fairing that's depicted on Terran. Yeah. And that's the fairing where Peter Beck was sitting when he blended up his hat and ate it. I thought that shot was so freaking good. Yeah. Uh, where they zoomed out. I did not see that coming. That was just pure theater. The production value, everything in that video was really, really, really well made. Yeah, I was going to say, we have to take a moment to appreciate how good they are at that. Like, they're very good at making videos. <laughs> they have a very good PR department. 
So this will also be launching possibly from the same launch pad as the Antares in Wallops. They said that they're going to be launching right next to where they're currently going to be launching the Electron, and there's and there's only one pad that that could be, and that's actually the Antares launch pad. Mm. But like maybe there's room to build another one. I don't know. But um, since this does you know fit those same dimensions, it could be the same launch pad. I mean, it would make sense too, right? I mean, like there's not exactly Antares launches every you know every two weeks or anything mm. like that you know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty uh, pretty relaxed launch schedule so i'm sure you could fit some neutrons on there for sure so uh, i don't know who wrote this but in in our show notes it says looks like four engines on the first stage but probably not uh, is the is the probably not in favor of six engines or, or i guess nine engines so I wrote that, and I think the reason is just because landing a first stage with four engines, I suppose, you know, you could do it with two engines that, that are opposing yeah. one another. Um, but it seems like, you know, having a central engine might be a better way to go. Um, at least that's, yeah. you know, the speculation that certain people have had. Yeah, and if if you're doing two opposing engines, you really have got to have some incredible deep throttle capabilities, right? Yeah. And it doesn't look like it could be five in in the photo that I'm looking at, so. But yeah, so this is actually going to be a Carolox engine, so kerosene or RP-1, and that really surprises me because uh, that doesn't seem like something you would want for a reusable engine. Of course, you can do it because that's what SpaceX is doing, but um, you'd think that with all the hype about methane, hmm. maybe they would try for that, but I, I guess that's that would require, who knows, how many more years of development. So you're talking about throttling down, so this is the other speculation is, is it going to be in, you know, electric pump or a turbo pump? So these are going to have to be larger engines like whether there's four of them or even seven i would guess you know like however many there are plus you're you know bringing that mass back down if you're going to be landing it and so if you have batteries you're gonna have to take that with you um but i guess maybe they can drop some of them off isn't that what they do with the second stage at least i don't know how practical that is for a first stage if that's even possible i you know i don't know how the engineering of that works the logistics of dumping batteries overboard but yeah it doesn't seem practical to have a large engine that's running off of an electric motor um, I think that that was the whole point, right? Like that's something that we've talked about a lot, that these types of motors are great for small engines, but not large ones. So maybe this will have a you know traditional turbo pump, but that's something that has not been disclosed yet. So yeah, so these are all just questions I really want answers to, and I mm-hmm. suspect we'll find out eventually. But, but the way things are, yeah, I'm sure we're going to be able to uh, see the actual you know, rocket analyzed to all hell once, you know, <laughs> once we actually get the details, you know. <laughs> yeah, cuz I don't think Rocket Lab is going to go the going to go the Blue Origin Blue route and route, just yeah, yeah <laughs> completely tight-lipped. I think that, you know, we'll find things out. And um oh, and, and and then the last thing I think is that it looks like the rocket is stainless steel. So this is not right. so this is nothing like the Electron, you know, which has, you know, carbon composite. So that's neutron. So uh I can't wait. I'm very excited because I feel like uh Rocket Lab is the kind of company as Peter Beck said that when they say going to do something they do it and that's why i'm so excited and i'll go buy stock yeah i was gonna say go buy stock <laughs> I, I think their uh their stock price right now is like 12 bucks yeah i think they they were the or the um the spac was at 10 bucks before the announcement and then jumped up to like 15 and then came back down to 12 so i mean mm-hmm. 12 dollars for a share like pretty much anybody can afford a share and your bank probably has a free brokerage account that you can get. Like if you want the joy of owning a piece of a rocket company, like right now it costs 12 bucks. 
Okay, so let's do four short and sweets this week. What is the first one, Ben? All right, Starship burned down, fell over, and only then sank into the swamp. Or so says Colin in the chat. Uh, SN10 successfully lifted off and landed on Wednesday, uh, but it didn't stay on the pad for very long. Uh, the vehicle successfully lit all three engines for the landing flip, then shut down two as expected. However, the remaining engine failed to produce full thrust for an as-yet-unknown reason. Uh, while the landing legs also failed to lock into their open position, the vehicle touched down at too high a velocity for the legs to have mattered. Elon said on Twitter that SN11 will land on two engines for redundancy, and that the vehicle will be able to relight the third engine in a worst-case scenario. A few minutes after landing, the vehicle tipped over and exploded. And then next up, another SpaceX news item. SpaceX wins a contract. The AFRL, which is the Air Force Research Laboratory, has awarded SpaceX an $8.5 million contract to investigate advanced materials and manufacturing techniques of thermal protection systems for hypersonic flight vehicles. The ultimate goal is low-cost, high-volume production of next-generation TPS materials. Uh, the contract was awarded in December, but news of the winner has only now been made public. This AFRL initiative will support programs for the Defense Department, DARPA, and the Air Force. So this is like the first instance I can think of of them outsourcing their own technology. Not outsourcing, but um, selling their own technology to someone else. So that's kind of cool. Next up, price changes announced for ISS and lunar mission. NASA has changed its pricing policy for commercial users of the International Space Station. In a statement published on the agency's website, NASA wrote that the cost rises are meant to reflect full reimbursement for the value of their resources. The price for each kilogram of upmass cargo, i.e. cargo delivered to the station, has increased from $3,000 to $20,000, while the price for downmass changed from $6,000 to $40,000. In addition, use of crew member time has increased from $17,500 per hour to $130,000 per hour. The changes have taken effect immediately and caught some ISS users by surprise. Meanwhile, the Viper Lunar Rover mission's cost has also increased the original $250 million price tag increasing to $433 million. The increase has been attributed to the new science-oriented mission goals of the road. And finally, Perseverance update. This week, Perseverance drove forward 4 meters, turned 150 degrees left, then drove backwards 2.5 meters. This short test follows a successful mass deployment, checkout of seven of the rover's instruments, camera calibration, and the taking of many, many photos. Over the next few weeks, the rover will complete its checkout activities and begin its lifelong journey across the face of Mars. In less exciting news, it has been confirmed that the audio from the EDL sequence was lost due to a communications error between the microphone digitizer and the main computer. However, the system has been fixed, and new sounds from Mars have been sent home. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we got a list of things for this week as well. All right, so first up, uh, Ryan uh, emailed us. Thank you, Ryan. And this is talking about the um, the cable stump photo that was in uh, the show notes. Um, Ryan actually saw it in the newsletter. So if you don't know, there's a newsletter where you can get the show notes. Um, I try to get them out by 3 p.m. Eastern time uh, every week on Tuesday, right before the 
before the episode comes out so you can uh, subscribe and look at photos ahead of time so that you know what we're talking about. Or if you are listening to the show and there's something that you want to go follow up on, um, you can have those show notes in your email um, and you don't have to go digging through your uh, podcast players list <laughs> of, uh, of episodes to go find the, the links. Um, but anyway, Ryan saw uh, the photo that I included uh, that was like uh, the stump of a cable on Perseverance that that got cut. Ryan actually did some pretty cool, uh, pretty cool uh, detective work here. He went and tracked down what exactly this was. So uh, it turns out this is actually the umbil- one of the umbilicals. Um, there, there are actually two umbilicals as far as we can tell. Um, I need to do some more research. Hopefully I'll have a good link in the show notes to accompany this. Um, uh, but basically, um, you can actually see there are two umbilicals and, uh, Ryan sent us, uh, some photos from Perseverance's like raw photo, uh, database. And you can see that the one that I included in the show notes last week is like sticking straight up and has a clean end, but there's another one sitting next to it that actually terminates in the guillotine. So the guillotine is actually still attached to Perseverance, uh, and the cable runs up into the bottom of it, and out, out the top you can kind of see some frayed ends or something. So uh, we're not exactly sure what's going on here. Um, we've had some discussions in the chat, and we're trying to figure this out. Uh, the stump that I included a photo of last week is not the uh, the sky crane umbilical because um, you can actually see in descent photos um, it was already cut um, before touchdown. So we're thinking that that is either um, leading to the back shell or to the cruise stage or something like that. Um, and then the the one uh, that terminates in the guillotine or um, the cable cut or whatever. Uh, that mechanism is. Yeah, I, I think it's called a guillotine because Ryan referred to it as a, a NASA standard initiator and a guillotine mechanism. Um, so I think, I think that cylinder is, is technically the, the guillotine. But anyway, um, that we think is the umbilical that got cut after touchdown. And then there are also the tether anchors. And I'm assuming that those are explosive bolts. Again, I'm going to try and include some good photos in the show notes. Okay. And then second, um, Ben Hallett wrote in, thank you, Ben, about inclinometers versus tilt sensors versus gyros. Uh, last week I was talking about these in reference to ingenuity and I conflated an inclinometer and a gyro and, and Ben uh, taught me a little bit here, so I, I can just read his his tweet verbatim. Uh, an inclinometer slash tilt sensor measures tilt or gravity. It's coupled to an external force and reacts passively to it. A gyro operates independently of external forces, often by measuring changes in angular velocity. Um, so this is a great example that I really like. Um, if you are flying a plane in a coordinated turn, you're banking. Uh, you, you're rolling the the airplane to the side, and you pitch up. Well, you, you're pitching up to keep your nose uh, on the horizon, but that's an uncoordinated turn. If you also add rudder, you line all the forces up so that so you're still experiencing the force of gravity, but um, you've put enough uh, bank and enough rudder in uh, so that the forces in your turn are going straight through your feet. Um, so basically you feel like 
Um, like there are no lateral forces being applied to you. You just feel a little heavier. Um, and so that in a coordinated turn, you would see zero tilt on an inclinometer. Um, but a gyro would be able to, you know, maintain the artificial horizon, uh, and understand your relationship to the horizon. And so most cell phones have a, a gyro and an accelerometer. And I, I'm assuming that in this, in this case, uh, Ingenuity has them both in the same package because they're using um, COTS uh, product, commercial off-the-shelf uh, components here. Um, and so they, you know, they don't have a physical gyro in there. Uh, they'll have uh, a MEMS gyro. Um, and what's, what's really cool about MEMS gyros is that they oscillate a little tiny, like a tuning fork almost, like a little piece of, I'm assuming silicon or silicon or, or, you know, it might be metal, but I think it's probably silicon that they can wobble back and forth. And so they basically make uh, a Foucault pendulum. Um, you know, those displays in science museums, uh, where they have uh, a pendulum swinging over a bed of sand and it draws patterns in it as the, as the world rotates underneath. That's, that's what, a uh, sort of this, you know, close to a solid state, uh, gyro is. So yeah, that, that's what's on board. Um, or ingenuity has those on board. It's just, let's, let's get the definitions right. Cause, cause that is important. And so, yeah, just to, to finish up here, Ben says, uh, an accelerometer slash tilt sensor slash inclinometer can't sense rotation, only acceleration along an axis. A gyro measures rotation along one or more axes. Um, independent of the frame reference, one can help the other, but they're not the same. So there you go. There's, <laughs> there's the right definition. Uh, thank you, uh, Ben and Ryan. I'll always appreciate learning and, and correcting mistakes. Today we have with us uh, Dr. Nicholas Trani from JPL's GNC section. Uh, welcome, Nicholas. How are you doing? Good morning. Yes, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I just love when I can... Um, find somebody that I want to talk to, uh, do a little bit of Googling to find their email address. And just like, you know, a week or two later, I, I get to ask them all the questions that I had that I couldn't ask them before. Um, so th thank you for carving mm -hmm. out some time with us. So uh, when we were talking before the show, you you listed uh, four of the hats that you've worn, and I'm sure that there have been many more, but you work with uh, the GNC section at JPL. Um, you were JPL's task lead for the 2014 Autonomous Descent a descent and ascent powered flight testbed or adapt, um, which flew on Maston space systems zombie, uh, vehicle. And that's, that's really why, uh, I got in touch with you and I, I, I can't wait. Um, but then you, uh, were also the lander vision system map relative localization algorithm lead for Mars 2020 perseverance and the lander vision system lead for the Mars sample return sample retrieval lander. And I guess was, uh, doesn't apply to that second one, uh, because that's, that's still, uh, well in the works. This, this is so cool. I, I guess first, what has been the most exciting thing? I mean, th these are just four hats, um, but does your, does your most exciting, your favorite task in your career fall in these four, these four hats? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, from the list that you gave, you, you see this progression from uh, technology development mm. to testing, field testing, and then finally a flight implementation uh, and 
quite clearly the the culmination of that was uh, on February 18, the uh, landing of Perseverance on Mars and seeing that system, you know, that we've been working on to develop over so many years, finally come to fruition and, and land successfully on the surface of another planet. It's just an absolutely outstanding experience. Where, where were you? Where, were you at JPL? You know, the last year, um, the pandemic has uh, altered the work landscape, I think, of all of us. And JPL is, is not, a, not an exception. So um, I was actually at home. Some of my colleagues were at JPL in the control center. Um, but a, a large portion of the overall Perseverance team was following along the events from home, just like, like you probably were. Mm. Um, we were watching on television with our families. Um, we were logged into uh, the computers and and followed the uh, events there. And um, yeah, it's a quite different experience from past spacecraft landings, as I understand. This was my first flight <laughs> yeah. mission, but um, yeah, following this from from the living room is is quite different, and yet still very very exciting. Um, mm -hmm. You, you right. may have come across some some videos of. Uh, team members mm -hmm. experiencing this life. It's, mm -hmm. you know, the thrill is just the same. Did you feel like you had less control? I mean, of course you don't have it either way, but did you feel like, you know, like, <laughs> like you're not like where you're supposed to be. So you just could only sit by and watch. I think the biggest difference was not to be there with all the other members of the team. You know, mm -hmm. the technology offers you a great means to stay connected and to, um, to continue working effectively as a team. But just to experience these kinds of key events together um, would have would have been really great. But you know we can't wait. Um, once the pandemic is over, we'll get mm -hmm. to uh, hopefully celebrate again and and just make up for the what for those experiences lost. Yeah. Well, heck, that's going to be a good party because you know everybody's well rested at that point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I really want to talk to you about terrain relative navigation um, first. Uh, I would love for you to define the scope of what TRN actually is, because um, I thought that it was a general uh, technology description and not a, an actual, like a proper noun. Um, and so I, I knew that Mastin Zombie had done some of this work and I had seen the word uh, you know, the, the acronym TRN associated with zombie, but I didn't realize that it was, NASA, like it was your software um, that was actually running. I thought it was just a general description of the type of software that Zombie was testing out. Um, so I guess my question is like, does does NASA see TRN as like a widely applicable software package um, that can be used on on different vehicles, or or was it specifically developed for Mars 2020, flown on Mars 2020, and then we're going to learn lessons uh, and move on to the next thing? Yeah, that that's a very good question. Um, TRN is a probably much overloaded term, um, and it means slightly mm -hmm. different things to different people. We in our team uh, have define TRN as a system capability for Mars 2020 specifically. TRN for Mars 2020 comprises two systems. One is the lander vision system, whose purpose it is to determine the position of the spacecraft during entry, descent, and landing very accurately. And then a second system, which is called STS, Safe Target Selection, is using this position and an onboard hazard map 
to um, precisely pick the safest landing spot um, and then navigate the vehicle um, to the surface to that to that location. In other contexts, you may have heard TRN used for for different sets of capabilities. We have used it in the sense of what we call map relative localization. So the act of navigating the spacecraft with respect to an onboard map using camera images and inertial navigation data. Other developers or other companies um, may use it in the context of all sorts of vision-based or even LIDAR-based or other sensor-based um, navigation relative to the surface of a planet. So it, it you know, it depends on who you talk to, how precisely you define the, the term TRN. How does the TRN system on Mars 2020 compare to MSL or Curiosity's landing system? Like, obviously, um, Curiosity didn't have didn't have something called TRN, but it, I mean, it did have vision systems. I mean, it, it at least re, uh, took some photos like is this just wholly like a new bolted on set of hardware and software and processors and all that? Or is there some heritage that directly leads uh, from Curiosity to, to Mars 2020's TRN? That's, again, a very good question. Um, past missions, uh, and you referred specifically to, to MSL and Curiosity, uh, landed on the surface using a combination of ground-based navigation up to the point um, of landing day, effectively, and then using a combination of inertial measurement data and, and radar information to uh, land safely on the surface. But we did not have the capability to get an absolute position update during entry, descent, and landing itself. And for that reason, the entire landing ellipse for MSL had to be safe. And that restricts where you can place this ellipse and where you can land the spacecraft. So we've been working on TRN-related technology for, for many years. Um, I started personally working on this uh, back in grad school. And um, we knew that if we could provide the information from images and combine that with the reconnaissance data that we already had from orbital assets, we could build a system that provided this capability of adding an absolute position estimate during landing itself. And once the scientists heard of this capability, they were, they were very, very interested <laughs> because all of a sudden it could enable landing ellipses that contained hazards. If you look at the system, the EDL system for Mars 2020, um, it had some very key and carefully engineered updates that, that fit seamlessly into this MSL heritage EDL system, but it provided some key new functions um, where you could use the existing divert capability from MSL more intelligently and fly to the nearest safe site that is reachable already within the MSL um, divert capabilities. From that, 
resulted a new set of possible landing sites that was previously not reachable, not safe enough. And that is what eventually led to Jezero Crater being selected as the landing site for Mars 2020. So yeah, in that sense, a, a colleague of mine, I think, phrased this very nicely. Um, with Mars 2020, we, we effectively changed from landing blind to landing with our eyes open. We, we effectively <laughs> added an, an automatic version of uh, you know, the Apollo astronauts navigating the vehicle as, as they came down. And it's, that's a huge, huge uh, advancement for any planetary land or spacecraft. It, it's satisfying to me that you compare it to Apollo because um, one of our listeners uh, joked about how, oh, it's no big deal. You know, Neil did this back in the 60s and 70s. Like this, this is nothing. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and it's, I mean, obviously like that's a joke because this, this is a huge leap. Um, but it's very cool that, yeah, we're, we're still working to replicate the capabilities of having humans on board. So would you say that the Tiran system is actually at this point, like maybe already better than, you know, like using a human being to land it? Or is it not quite there yet? Because it seems like if you have a computer performing these maneuvers, that might actually be more accurate compared to the way that they did it, you know, was it 60 years ago? Well, I I would not um, be so presumptive to say that we are better than, mm -hmm. than a human. Um, <laughs> certainly a human has mm -hmm. huge advantages in the areas of fault responses and um, reaction to anomalous events. And that is probably the, the most difficult area in, in our development. Um, and that's also probably an area that, that consumes a lot of the resources when we develop such a technology. From research in academia in the area of robotics, um, be it uh, ground mobile robotics, be it um, navigation of, of uh, small uh, drones or, or helicopters. Um, it, it's been known for quite a while that you can do onboard autonomous navigation, but there's always the question of the you know unknown unknowns and would you really trust a mission to these algorithms? So a lot of the efforts that that we spent over the past years was to develop, prototype, test, simulate, test, test some more, and make sure that we covered all possible scenarios that we could think of to, to make the system robust and accurate enough to, to, to meet the requirements. On, on landing day, uh, we were actually quite thrilled uh, to see that we, we ended up landing the spacecraft to within five meters of the targeted location. Um, that was <laughs> an absolutely stunning result, and the team was just just elated to hear these news. Okay, so I, I wanted to kind of pull us back to the discussion of scope real quick, and then we can um, kind of go back in history. Um, so bef before we go back in history, um, what do you... Do do you know anything about the planned future heritage of the of the code that you have right now? Like, I'm definitely not a uh, a NASA software engineer, but like I can imagine, um, you know, going into Git and forking this repo and basically taking this code and modifying it for a future mission. Um, it, do you know if that's the can you say if that's the case? Um, is this 
you know, maybe going to be something that would be used um, for the sample return lander. Um, and I guess what really interests me is, is how much of this code gets rewritten, how much of it is, you know, solid and, and trusted and, and ready to apply to a, to a new vehicle. So once a system has been developed and validated, and then now actually flight tested successfully, uh, obviously it's, it's a very valuable product. Um, a lot of resources go into developing and flight certifying a, any technology. Uh, so we are always striving to reuse and inherit proven flight proven technologies. You mentioned the Mars sample retrieval lander. Um, that is um, an obvious customer for this technology. And uh, in fact, I'm, I'm working on the lander vision system for that particular project. And um, we are still in the planning and engineering phase for um, seeing how the system can be reused, what pieces of the system would need to be adapted um, for that particular mission. Uh, okay, so so now let's let's go back in history. We just went forward in history. Let's go back in history a little bit. Tell us about Adapt. Um, how did you get involved with it? What were the uh, goals of the program? What was it like? Like just hit us. Okay, maybe I should step back even further. Um, <laughs> when I started in grad school back in in two thousand and four. We uh, were working on a project. And you went to U of M, right? Exactly. The University of Minnesota in the computer science department. And, and my advisor was working with JPL on the early versions of precision landing technology. And um, we, took, we, we kept developing this and maturing this technology. And uh, eventually, once I started working at JPL, we... Um, uh, started implementing prototypes of this technology on custom off-the-shelf hardware that had a path to flight, but was, you know, flexible enough to allow us to uh, do relatively quick uh, turnaround prototype development. And we ended up building a test platform um, that comprised uh, a Leon 3 processor board, a Vertex 5 FPGA for the image processing, and, um, you know, a, a relatively uh, low-cost camera and, and inertial measurement unit. And we, we um, developed this as a, as a system to demonstrate real-time TRN. Um, in, in 2014, uh, early in, in spring, we did a helicopter field test with that system. And we used that to demonstrate that TRN could meet requirements over a you know over the the bounds of the environment's um, requirements envelope. So we took it to to uh, the right altitude. We we flew it over different terrains in the in the Mojave Desert uh, that would be representative of the Martian environment. And, and yeah, we demonstrated the, the behavior of the system and we, we really shook it out. Um, but one key piece that proves to be very difficult to test on Earth is the descent velocity. On Mars, we have a vertical velocity of up to 100 meters per second. 
And that is just really, really hard to uh, test on Earth. I mean, you can imagine that that is just completely outside the realms of capability of, of a helicopter. So once that field test was completed, um, we looked at other options to do such a field test and to expand the testing in this vertical descent area of the envelope. And we decided to go with Mastin. Mastin is a, is a longtime partner for the NASA Flight Opportunities Program. So they provide uh, test flight opportunities for NASA payloads. And one thing, one key thing that we could demonstrate with them was a vertical descent, albeit not at the exact 100 meters per second, but we could do a scaled descent. Um, we descended at 10 meters per second uh, from 300 to 200 meters, which was designed mm. to give us the right scale change in the amount mm. of time that LVS was designed to operate over. Um, mm. And that is one key part that we wanted to demonstrate um, because scale change is one of the uh, key factors that a, that a vision system would, would have to deal with. And that's mm. what we were able to successfully show um, that the system performed as expected. So, so these two tests combined and coupled with some, you know, other areas of, of, uh, of testing, um, simulation, processing of uh, imagery from um, the MSL mission, all of this together um, formed, the, formed a really strong case for for arguing that this technology was at the right TRL level, at the right level of maturity to be infused into a mission. And that together eventually led to the technology being baseline for Mars 2020 back in 2016. So, so you mentioned a little bit um, how Mastin was already sort of a, a known quantity. Were any other platforms considered that you know of? Like a... I don't know if you're familiar with Mighty Eagle, other side of the country, but doing similar things to what, what you were doing. What were the considerations going into some of those options there? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we are not the only players in the area of TRN. Our, our colleagues uh, working on, on Mighty Eagle is just one other example of, of uh, uh, TRN being, being developed. We had also previously worked with the... Um, Multi NASA Center All Hat team on uh, testing uh, some of the um, TRN algorithms um, for for the testing with Mastin. We were drawing on an already existing program. Um, Adapt mm -hmm. was already established at the time um, since. They were doing test flights since 2012. Uh, another one in 2013. And so we were able to to um, work with that program and extend the scope of that program. So we had already this this existing uh, relationship um, that 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 helped. And Mastin, quite frankly, um, offered offered these capabilities that that we needed um, at the time, and it was just a natural natural fit. So 
to maybe expand on the the adapt uh, test program adapt at the beginning was designed to look at a different portion of the landing problem and particularly the, the pinpoint landing problem which is the the guidance part so in 2012 and 2013 adapt had demonstrated an, a new guidance algorithm developed at JPL called Gfold which is an optimal guidance algorithm that could uh, uh, compute large divert trajectories in a fuel optimal manner. So pairing that with uh, LVS was a, was a quite natural extension. So now you have the two key pieces that you would need for pinpoint landing, right? You first have a very accurate position um, estimate, and then you provide that to an optimal guidance algorithm that can then do a very large divert and get you to the um, targeted landing site. Uh, it turned out that for Mars 2020, um, that whole set of capabilities was not required. Um, we chose for 2020 a what we call a multi-X uh, landing approach. So the ability to land at multiple safe sites, at a, at a large set of safe sites uh, within the, the total landing ellipse. It was not a pinpoint landing approach where you had a single landing site uh, specified um, pre-landing. Pre but that was, that was the context of the ADAPT test program to uh, combine in, in 2014 uh, combine the localization part and the guidance part and show that uh, we could do pinpoint landing. And this is a capability, you know, that future missions may may pick up. Okay, cool. Because so that had me thinking about a question um, that I was wondering, like at the most fundamental level, like what was the big change in technology that kind of solved, you know, the ability to do TRN? Was it, you know? processing power, machine learning, or just straight up developing the algorithms? You know what I mean? Just making that happen. Uh, was it a combination of all of them or was there one that really stuck out? So, does that question make sense? <laughs> no, it, it absolutely does. And it, it always strikes me at the difference in technologies for spaceflight and that, that get, actually get infused and then the comparison of these technologies to, say, consumer-level technologies or research, mm. you know, academia-level uh, technologies. And it, it's um, invariably the case that the spaceflight technology, in, in some aspects, lags behind many years um, technologies that are being looked at in the in the academic realm. So, from an from an mm. algorithm perspective. Um, the algorithms that we are using are, are well established. I mean, they're not the you know latest and greatest cutting edge machine learning algorithms that you might find in you know this year's conference papers by any means. And similarly, the computing technology is not the latest and greatest that you have available in in consumer um, com computers or laptops or even cell phones. Uh, all of that, of course, for a good reason. So for us, I think the the big leap came when we were able to show that we could do the image processing in real time on compute 
technology that had a very clear path to space qualification. And um, from then on, it was really an effort in developing and then testing and validating that system. And um, that, that, takes, that takes a while. So what did it look like plugging your hardware into Zombie? So Zombie has a, a specific um, interface document from a mechanical and electrical standpoint. Uh, we were provided that, uh, that interface and we designed our payload to uh, fit within those specifications. Um, one of the key pieces that we wanted to ensure was that our hardware was mostly self-contained and that it would not cause any harm to the actual rocket. And that's actually a, a principle that, that carries forward to uh, the infusion in Mars 2020. That was one of the uh, principles that we were working towards, the do no harm principle. So uh, we wanted to make sure that we were um, power contained, self-contained and isolated. And we wanted to, we, we paid special attention to the data interface um, to, to the zombie vehicle. Um, in particular, we needed to make sure that, that any communication from us would not interfere with the rocket. And we also made sure that any solution that we would provide to the spacecraft could be safely used. So the, the Masten engineers had placed several uh, safety checks in place that um, would test the provided trajectory that the uh, ADAPT payload gave to the Masten GNC system. And uh, if it was outside of specific parameters, um, the vehicle would just follow a pre-programmed trajectory. So mm. that you know, those those things were big pieces of the the testing prior to flight. That uh, all the interfaces were correct, and that we could demonstrate in, in simulation that uh, the vehicle would be safe. And at the day off, we had a, a ground station, a separate ground station for the JPL system in place. We were operating out of a, a ground station actually outside the, the airport perimeter. Uh, we were up in the, uh, near the, the Mojave Air and Spaceport. And we had a, yeah. a uh, wireless connection to our payload so we could pre-launch um, monitor um, the, the status of the payload. And then, I mean, obviously, Mastin was in, in full control of, of the vehicle at all mm -hmm. times, but it gave us some insight into how the, how the system was operating. And we could, we could follow along and see the performance of the system during the test. It was quite exciting. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. It's interesting to me that you did a, a scaled test uh, on Zombie, and you said it was scaled down by 10 times. And, and then on top of that, you're running open loop instead of closed loop, what does it take to ensure that you're getting valid data? Like how, how do you make sure that it's an apples to apples comparison to um, what Mars 2020 would then go on to do? That, that, that's a good question. Um, how do you test a system to make sure you cover all corners of the operational envelope? We deal with that in what we call uh, a trifecta of of VNV, one being uh, hardware test bed, the second one being simulations, and the third one being field tests. 
And the, the very nature of field tests is that you can never cover all the operational envelope of a Mars landing just because, mm. you know, f- um, at the very basic level that uh, some of the environmental parameters are just different, uh, gravity being the most yeah. obvious one, but there, there are others as well. And so with any field test we do, we try to cover the most critical pieces for for any subsystem and they may change by subsystem for us we were very interested in altitude um, we wanted to meet um, operational altitude we wanted to meet um, or to explore the effects of parachute motions so for that i'm, I'm talking about the helicopter field test right now um, we, we added a gimbal um, to the to the field test setup to be able to emulate um, motions of the camera that uh, would look similar to what it would experience under a parachute. We were interested in terrain characteristics. Um, quite a bit of effort went into selecting the field test sites that would have mm-hmm. uh, similar characteristics as a Mars landscape, particular, you know, not being full of man-made structures that tend to uh, work very well with image processing, but have, you know, mostly natural terrain, have a variety of terrain relief that is similar to what we would expect on Mars uh, and and other characteristics. And then from a dynamics perspective, we try to test the corners of what we would expect to see during EDL on Mars. But all of that comes with limitations. And some of them are just characteristics of the test platforms that we have available. And uh, it is just quite difficult to find a test platform that can do 100 meters per second uh, vertical descent you know, at the altitudes that we need for Mars 2020. So for that reason, it's quite common that you try to uh, scale uh, tests within the right parameter space. And that's what we did here with the ADAPT test flight. Um, so we, we maintained the scale change, we maintained the time constants, but we, we scaled the altitude and the velocity space so that the effect on the image processing would still be the same. We then obviously um, had other data sets and, and simulations that would cover the actual uh, dynamics that we would expect for Mars. So the actual altitudes, the actual descent velocities, and, and so forth. So we try you know, to test as much as we can with a field test within the limits of, of you know, the realistic capabilities of, of our test vehicles. And then we fill in the remaining pieces um, through simulations or um, data sets that we have available. Uh, say, for example, from from past landings. So, yeah, segueing into Mars 2020, I'm curious as to, was there anything that you noticed that was of significant difference and that maybe you had not considered or was there anything that surprised you during, you know, the entry, descent, and landing process or did everything just go smoothly? Because I'm kind of curious as to what your expectations were and then, you know, exactly what happened. It seemed to have gone pretty much flawlessly, but I suspect that there have been some surprises. Sure, I can I can uh, maybe give you two pieces um, to that question and answer in two pieces. Um, the first one, the difference between what we did on ADAPT 
and what eventually flew. And I think that was one of the key experiences for me in, in the last years, or the, the first years actually of working at JPL. When, when I started at JPL, TRN was very much in the realm of technology development. And you can picture that, um, you know, as, a, as a, a number of engineers coming together and brainstorming and uh, prototyping a technology. It's a fairly fast design cycle, right? We, we find things that don't quite work right. So we, we update them. We, we test them relatively quickly and we make changes relatively quickly during the, the first helicopter field test. We definitely were out there in the field and, and tweaking the algorithms for the next day, sometimes based on things we learned, you know, the day before we made parameter updates or such. And all of that is, is, is quite appropriate for technology development. Um, but after the ADAPT field test, um, we were then eventually in 2016 baseline for Mars 2020. And now the project transitioned into a flight implementation. And that is quite a different process with a lot of rigor, uh, a lot of planning, a lot of testing, a lot of documentation, and very, very careful VNV, very, very careful validation verification. That really took, you know, this prototype on, on very different levels, right? From prototype software, prototype hardware, custom off-the-shelf sensors to now a full-fledged, very, very carefully designed, implemented, and tested system. And that was very fascinating to follow along, this transition from you know, the early processing that I did in grad school to then this prototype and field test experience in the early years uh, and you know, with the helicopter and then and with, with ADAPT, and then the flight implementation uh, a repeat of the helicopter field test in 2019, and then eventually the whole flight experience. It's very exciting to to see the technology effectively, you know, from this sketches on a napkin to a, to a full flight implementation. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a great privilege to be able to be part of all these all these steps. In in terms of how it was different on flight day, I was actually surprised in, in to some degree. How similar it was. We we look at the output products from the data that we received back, and I compare that to uh, some of the post-flight uh, videos that we did, looking at you know image footprints and and the feature matches, and it looks surprisingly similar. And I think that is a a testament to you know how how consistently we were in, in planning and engineering um, and the system. A lot of the development for, for flight is focused on preparing for things that may go wrong. We, we spend a lot of effort uh, testing for the boundaries of our environment, of our um, operational envelope. But then the day of the landing on, on February 18, um, things really went pretty nominally. The uh, the system worked really really well, and um, at least as as far as we know from from the LVS perspective, we really haven't seen any major surprises yet, and that's a good thing. Um, that means that uh, 
we we designed the system right and we we tested the right things and and it, and it worked so we we are really really excited about that so i know that um you know y'all are still working on data and not all of this has been released so it's okay if this isn't uh, a question that you can answer but i know that um, there's a planned diversion um, to avoid the heat shield. Do you know if, or can you speak about how how much uh, control was exerted after that? Like, was a new landing point selected on the in those last few minutes? Were there any uh, obstacles seen at a lower altitude that we couldn't see from orbit? Okay, so you touch on on a, a several interesting points. So there are a few components of the spacecraft that are jettisoned during EDL. The heat shield is one of them. The, the next one is the, the back shell that has the parachute attached to it. And that is actually the component that during powered approach, the, the divert is designed to avoid. Oh, right. Of course. Right. Of course. Yeah. And in this case, we had this additional capability to use that divert capability, not just to avoid the back shell, but also to target the nearest safe site. That is being done um, based on an onboard hazard map. So based on a priori reconnaissance data, we were able to, to classify the terrain in safe and less safe uh, landing zones. And on board, that was overlaid with you know, the, the reachable area based on our divert capability, and also the desired area that would simultaneously avert, avoid the back shell. And from that, we, we chose the, the safest landing site. You touched on one other thing that is, that is interesting, which is the aspect of could we see hazards during EDL at higher resolution than what we were able to discern from reconnaissance data from orbital imagery? And this is not something that we did for Mars 2020. This is a process called uh, active hazard detection. And for 2020, we did not do this. We did the hazard detection based on a priori reconnaissance images. So we had this safety map or hazard map on board already ready to go. It was not updated based on real-time imagery or real-time measurements during EDL. So this would be a different set of technologies, active hazard avoidance, and um, that is still very much the the focus of ongoing technology development for for future missions. Some questions from some of our listeners. We have a question from Colin, and he wants to know what are the or what challenges does a TRN like system present to VTOL systems like Ingenuity, and are computational loads excessive? So yeah, I think I think his actual question I I summarized in the notes but i think his question was would the faster processors uh on ingenuity um have been appreciated uh in your work i guess that's an interesting question um obviously processing capabilities are, are always of interest for algorithms like trn but you have to distinguish between a mission critical edl sensor and sure. a technology demonstrator like Ingenuity. So Ingenuity was able to incorporate some technologies that I believe we would probably not have been able to for risk um, considerations. But I think generally speaking, um, the 
computing power and the technologies that you know we are in, we have um, implemented and the those that are that have been investigated by ingenuity and those that are under consideration now in, in ongoing technology development tasks um, they are all very exciting for the next generation of TRN systems and and expanding capabilities beyond what what we have uh, demonstrated on on Mars 2020. And, and it's ex this question is actually kind of funny because it, I think Colin is uh, falling under the same uh, misunderstanding that I had <laughs> um, because um, Ingenuity already has vision systems for um, for uh, maybe yeah I guess, I guess it counts as navigation I mean basically feature tracking to do the same thing that you'd normally use like GPS for and so I, I don't I don't believe that ingenuity has um, hazard avoidance capabilities either so actually you know I, they're very different approaches but they're solving you know a similar problem um, but I, I really like that you point out the uh, the rigor difference there because yeah ingenuity is going to fly for 30 days and you know hopefully get up to five flights but um that's a very different responsibility load than than landing the the primary mission from space by the way <laughs> like that's it's so cool this next question also probably let me let me run this past you does trn that was used on percy have any ties to the nasa system that flew on blue origins new shepherd um do, do you know what what flew on new shepherd um i know that they were testing something you are correct there was a recent flight test of uh, the New Shepard vehicle that, that did incorporate uh, some NASA technologies uh, from the so-called SPLICE program. These were all sensors related to landing technologies. There was a, a TRN system was on board and a uh, Doppler LiDAR was on board. Yeah, and that test was actually uh, quite successful. Yeah, so in, in this case, actually, you know, the, the New Shepard vehicle offers testing capabilities that is related to what, what Mastin was used for, right? It's, it's another rocket vehicle. It has quite a different uh, dynamic en envelope, uh, uh, flies quite a bit higher and quite a bit faster. I mean, significantly yeah. uh, higher and faster. So it, it allows you to test different areas of, of uh, operational envelopes. And uh, so it's a very, very exciting capability. And it's also an, a, a very exciting way of partnering with industry. Um, you know, we are able to get on the NASA side really good test data and industry is able to see the capabilities of the, of the NASA technologies. And um, I think mm -hmm. that's, that's just a very, very exciting area to cooperate. Yeah. So okay. So splice is safe and precise landing integrated capabilities evolution. Boy, that's a tortured acronym. Um, <laughs> yeah, they usually are. All right. Well, uh, I think we're coming to the end of uh, the end of our time here. So we have our traditional two final questions for you. Uh, the penultimate question is: Where would you like to be found on the internet? I think the best way to find me is uh, my LinkedIn page, and I've also provided the team with some uh, links to NASA websites that uh, you can check out for additional background material. And uh, for the ultimate question, um, if you could bring one object with you into space, what would that be? So normally we, we specify 
you know, going into space means going to the ISS or a commercial space station in low Earth orbit. But I mean, given your work, I think we can put you all the way on the surface of Mars if that's where you'd like to be. <laughs> that's 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 a very generous uh, offer. We we don't often let people uh, <laughs> go all the way to Mars. I'm not sure if this is uh, in the in the realm of permissible objects, and object is not really the right the right term. But uh, if I could, I think I'd. I'd bring my uh, my family, especially my kids, because you know they are they are young. They just start school, and they see you know these great steps that we're taking. And um, hopefully, when they are grown up, they uh, may be among those people who experience humanity landing on a different planet. And that would just be a, a great legacy to to enable. Uh, I see. So uh, you're taking the question and turning it into if your kids could bring one object and you're the object. I get it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, let's just go ahead and say that, yeah, you bring your family with you. But then if you could bring one object in addition to your family, what might that be? Probably a, a green plant. If you look at the Ooh, images yeah. of Mars, yeah, that's a good answer. It, is, it is very barren. It is very dry and desert-like. And I think... Having a green plant is probably what would be one of the the greatest reminders of uh, our our precious Earth back home, and uh, I think that's what I would do. Okay, well, great. Thank you so much for all of your time. Um, this has been—I mean, it's like sitting in a hot tub. Honestly, it's you just get to soak in the knowledge and the uh, and the story. So, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for taking so much time uh, away from your life to talk to us. Thank you so much for for having me. This was really fun. All right, this week in spaceflight history, we got three winners, Ben H., the Greek, and Robert Allen. We had one other incorrect guest, and that was by Peter McMalley, but it was a very good guess. And I do like incorrect guesses that fit our clues perfectly, mm -hmm. so we might use that particular event in the future. Yep. So good job there. So what was the clue for this week's This Week in Spaceflight History? So our clue was the first stop on our road trip. Uh, and that is referring to the event on the 15th of March, 1986, which is when the Soyuz T-15 mission docked with Mir. And so why that's the first stop on a road trip, uh, we'll have to basically follow that mission to figure out. And so, <laughs> um, so I wanted to start with just a little background and context for uh, what was going on. You may have heard, right, there's a lot of different Soyuz Soyuz-I, right, Soyuzes, different Soyuz spacecraft. And um, I, I often have trouble keeping them straight. And so that's kind of why I wanted to just start by pointing out, right, the Soyuz TM. So this is one that flew from 1986 to 2002. And, uh, you know, this was, the T stands for, you know, transportation. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the M uh, is referring to. But uh, uh, essentially, this one uh, was the introduction of the uh, KERS rendezvous and docking system, right, which is still, you know, on the latest iteration of Soyuz spacecraft today. Um, it had a uh, an updated uh, propulsion system uh, compared to the previous Soyuz spacecraft where it integrated the uh, the main uh, propulsion uh, as well as the RCS and uh, attitude control all in a single system. And that previous one that it had updated was uh, the Soyuz T, or in that case, the T is just, you know, transportation. Uh, then the M and TM is uh, for modified. And so that's what the Soyuz TM is uh, uh, standing for. Soyuz transport modified. Now, it was modifying the Soyuz T, which is just Soyuz transport. And that one flew from 79 to 86. And uh, it also had a number of firsts. It was, you know, 
It was the first uh, to fly with solid-state electronics, had a better computer. Um, there actually was a large gap between it and the previous ones because uh, it was uh, the, the Soyuz spacecraft to fly after the Soyuz 11 disaster um, on orbit. What's pretty cool about this, uh, uh, one of the big differences is that this was before the KERS docking system, and so this was the IGLA, uh, which means icicle. Um, or no, sorry, needle. <laughs> I see the eye and I want to do icicle. But yeah, it means uh, needle. And so this was a uh, a system for docking that, you know, existed before KERS. Uh, so that's kind of a, a, a key difference between these two spacecraft. And in the bigger picture, what was happening in the Soviet Union was they were going to have this uh, their 27th Congress. You know, uh, and this was going to be an event going over a week. Uh, it looks like, what, maybe two weeks long or so, right? And so the idea was that they wanted to have, you know, Mir on orbit and also have a spacecraft docked to Mir in time for this Congress. Now, Mir's core module had already been launched earlier in February, but the uh, Soyuz TM wasn't ready yet. And it ended up it wouldn't fly until May uh, as an uncrewed mission. As a result, they kind of weren't ready for their next generation Soyuz to make it to Mir. And so they're like, all right, well, fine, we're going to send a Soyuz T instead. And so this is, you know, this one that, again, had been flying since uh, 1979. And so visiting a lot of Salyuts, for example. The Soyuz T launched, and so this was uh, the mission designation was Soyuz T-15, um, right? That's kind of how they you know, designate these these Soviet and then Russian uh, missions where, you know, uh, once the TM was flying the Soyuz TM, then you had Soyuz TM-1, Soyuz TM-2, and so on. The Soyuz T-15, uh, you know, launched from Baikonur, had, uh, or Site-15, which is Gagarin's start, right? the, the original one where they, you know, would send their crew missions. It took off on March 13th, and it had Leonid Denisovich Kazim and Vladimir Alexeyevich Solovyov uh, were the two cosmonauts on board. It was pretty cool. Um, they, they actually had been together on a previous uh, Soyuz mission to uh, uh, a Salyut. And so they, you know, had worked together along. They had a third crewmate on that particular mission, but they had flown together before. And uh, there's actually some pretty interesting stuff on that mission, but that's for another This Week in Space Flight. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. uh, they launch on the 13th of March. Uh, it's a two-day flight to get to Mir, and they, you know, arrive at Mir. And the reason I bothered yapping about two different docking systems is that the IGLA system, right, this older one that is on their spacecraft, the Soyuz T, is uh, intended for docking with Mir's aft port, while the Kerr system, right, this upgraded one that's going to be on the Soyuz TM once they fly it, uh, is designed to dock with Mir's forward port. And so these these systems, right, they involve essentially like facing, you know, uh, radar dishes or uh, radio dishes at each other and essentially being able to align and get uh, ranging and, you know, not just the distance, but also the, the separation between them. And, and and that's kind of the big thing about these systems. And so that's why, you know, it, they depend not just on what's on the spacecraft, but they also depend on what's on the target as well. And so that's also kind of a big difference, too, is that the IGLA system involved both the spacecraft and the target. Uh, to be, you know, to basically point at each other. So even though the spacecraft's going to do all the maneuvering, it still required the, the the passive member of the the pair to at least aim itself at the uh, spacecraft to do a little guidance there. Uh, while curves could be done solely uh, with just the um, the spacecraft doing all the pointing and maneuvering, and you could have a totally dead in the water passive uh, uh, station or whatever else that you wanted to dock to. And, and ultimately, the, the the idea with Mir, because right, right right now it's just the core module, but the idea is that you know on the the forward port, that's where you would have your humans uh, go and dock, and so the aft port uh, would be there 
for receiving uh, progress supply missions, right? The, the progress, you know, uh, supply vehicle. What they ended up doing then, right, was basically uh, approaching the aft port because the IGLA system, right? I mean, it can sort of, you know, start talking and make a, a initial connection at, you know, while it's still, you know, you know, a few tens of kilometers out, you know, to get that close to Mir, right? They, they, they basically have IGLA guide them in until they get really close. Uh, we're talking like 200 meters. And then at that point, they turn off the IGLA system Right, because right now they're hovering 200 meters away from the aft side, but they, being humans, <laughs> want to go to the forward side, and so they had to manually maneuver over to there. And so um, they did that, and now they're the first crew on Mir. So you know there was a few different ways we could have gone with this clue, but they're the first crew to land on Mir, and uh, this was March 15th, so it was a few days after the uh, uh, the Communist Party. Uh, 27th Congress. So uh, they kind of missed that date, uh, alas, by actually by a good week or so. But this, I mean, talk about a wild mission, though. Okay. So they're on, they're on Mir, you know, they're doing Mir things. This is, you know, the first time, you know, humans are on board. And so really cool. Um, a pair of uh, progress spacecraft uh, come and go. Although while the second one is docked there, um, they are ready to leave the, the two uh, uh, cosmonauts. Before they leave, though, you know, they pack their personal belongings, some plants that were grown on board, you know, things like that. But they go and lower Mir by 13 kilometers because Salyut 7, right, the final of the Salyut uh, space stations, was 4,000 kilometers ahead of them, and that was actually their next destination. So hence the whole idea of this being a uh, first stop on a road trip. It's because they didn't go, after they uh, undocked from Mir, they didn't go back home like every other mission has done so far uh, to this date, you know, yeah. and, and by to, the, to today, the 2021. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, indeed, so they, they wanted to maneuver Mir to basically catch up and get a little closer to Salyut to save some fuel because there's only so much fuel on board the, uh, the, the Soyuz uh, uh, T spacecraft. They undock and then uh, a day later arrive at Salyut 7. And so this was the sixth and final Salyut 7 expedition. So it's really talk about like passing a baton over, right? At this point, Salyut 7 is dead in the water. Uh, it's got ice forming on it. It has no power. And the reason why is because the previous expedition, uh, Expedition 5, was cut short because uh, Vladimir Vesutin, um, who was one of the, uh, I think he might have been the commander. He was, he was one of the cosmonauts on board. Uh, I think there were three for that uh, expedition. And he got seriously ill. I know, right? So, so Dave in the chat saying, you know, this is amazing. I had no idea this ever happened. That was me and, uh, David's reaction. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. I, I immediately was just like, you know, David, did you, you know, ever hear about this? And like, I had no idea. Ben, were you, fam were you aware that this happened? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know much about it, but I knew that it happened. I mean, it's basically, okay. um, Sandra Bullock in real life, right? Right. Oh, yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> Except possible. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Notably possible, right? <laughs> yeah, good little qualifier to sneak in there. So, so yeah, so so Salyut Seven, is, it's 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 just chilling there, right? And it's because yeah, that previous uh, mission was cut short either because uh, Vladimir Vasutin was either seriously ill with you know urinary tract infection and fever, or that uh, he suffered a psychological episode. Um, you know, sometimes these things aren't very clear, uh, but the upshot is that that was kind of what this visit to Salyut 7 was, uh, among other things, to basically tie up loose ends. And so uh, it involved a pair of uh, EVAs uh, where, you know, 
Um, the first one, uh, and, and this is now May 28th. And so the, this is a long-term mission, this, uh, Soyuz, uh, TM-15, uh, long-term mission to multiple space stations, which is just wild. And it involved EVA. Yeah. It had it all. So anyway, the, the, the cosmonauts go on an EVA. <laughs> they're collecting these, uh, you know, these exposed, uh, experiments, these cassettes that were left out there from, uh, the earlier mission. Uh, they messed around with what's called the, uh, URS truss. And so this is one of these, you know, trusses because, right, we're still in kind of like early, right? Mir is going to kind of really be the first big multiple module type space station. You know what I mean? Like every, all the previous space stations were just, you know, a thing or maybe two things docked to each other. I'm not even sure if, you know, oh yeah. I mean, when you include visiting spacecraft. No, I, I, th I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Hmm. And at, at the same time, you know, uh, the U.S. is thinking the same thing and they're, they're playing around with these, you know, expandable truss structures in, in the shuttle uh, payload bays. You know what I mean? And so anyway, this, this was a pretty cool thing. It, 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 it would extend to 12 to 15 uh, meters while only weighing 20 kilograms. And uh, Kazim wow. uh, deployed it. There's a few buttons that, you know, you could have to retract it and uh or rather extend it and then he climbed halfway up it and you know he he, he only had good things to say it seemed to be pretty stable and <laughs> pretty solid and then there was a second eva uh you know uh, a few days later um where they were kind of you know they messed around with the the truss again before they you know took it and brought it back in, inside because this was something they had to take outside and actually attach to you know the outside of the salute station uh to be able to uh, you know, deploy it. And so um, there, there were other things on board uh, that were parts of these EVAs. They weren't terribly uh, big and evolved ones. Uh, the first one was less than four hours and the second one was about five hours. And uh, But, you know, once they were done with that, they uh, removed 20 experiments from the Salyut 7 uh, station. They knew that this was going to be the end of that um, mission. And so they, yeah, they took these experiments, 350 to 400 kilograms worth, uh, packed it into their Soyuz, and then they undocked from Salyut 7. Meanwhile, at Mir, a, uh, a Soyuz uh, TM uh, spacecraft was finally ready to fly, and so this was an uncrewed one that I mentioned uh, that would fly back uh, would fly in May. And so Soyuz TM one, the first time uh, the Soyuz TM spacecraft flew, basically showed up at Mir, hung out there for a week, and then left. And so um, while you know uh, it was there, the two maneuvers were performed to lower Mir and move it closer to Salyut seven. So why on earth are they moving Mir towards Site 7? Because the expedition isn't over. So use T-15, <laughs> then returns to Mir. They left Site 7 on June 25th, and then basically a day later arrive at Mir. This is just, talk about like a ferry, right? They're just going back and forth between these yeah. two. And so they had all this Site 7 equipment and experiments, right? That's why they basically, uh, what, cannibalized the Site 7, because they knew that thing was doomed. Uh, I mean, it would still orbit for another couple of years before... Um, you know, it was toast, but that was the last time humans would ever be in Site 7. And so they basically just, you know, used all that to kind of start kitting up Mir and getting it ready for the kind of long history that Mir had afterwards. And then finally, you know, and this, again, all starts in March, right? This week in spaceflight history. And then finally on uh, July 16th, they uh, undock from Mir after continuing their, you know, expedition there. And then three and a half hours later, go and land you know, in the, uh, the Russian steps and, uh, yeah. And what an end to a really incredible mission. 
That is quite the road trip. Yeah, right. Quite the <laughs> well put. And I don't know when something like that might ever happen again. I suppose rendezvous with another spacecraft, but not a space station, because there's only, well, I guess there's the Chinese one. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it would just be cool to see this happen. Absolutely. Again. And 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 I do like that. In uh, Ben Hallert's uh, when he tweeted his answer, um, he wrote also that this is the first time a crew visited two stations in one flight. Perhaps someday it won't be uncommon, right? And so yeah. Uh, Oh my goodness! And Colin's got a line here in the Discord that can't I can't pass on this. Uh, let's just swing by Salute Mart and grab some milk slash spare parts. Be back soon. <laughs> yeah, that is that's kind of like you know, the, like they went to Salute to get some stuff that you know they couldn't keep there, and then they came back with it. Like that's I don't know. Isn't that wild? There is something very futuristic mm. about that. Yeah, like you can go get stuff somewhere else in space that you need and bring it back to where you are in space. Absolutely. So so you asked if I had heard of this. I, I yeah. had, but I didn't realize that they returned to Mir again. I thought I thought they landed after getting to Salyut Seven. That's that that oh man, that's so cool. <laughs> and I guess it you know, like you said, they lowered the orbit by thirteen kilometers and or fourteen or whatever, and so that brought them closer, right? It just you know kind of shortened the orbit. I'm trying to think of the orbital mechanics involved here, like exactly what they did. Yeah. Um, but I mean that did save fuel. So right, yeah. So I guess you know, yeah, if Salyut was ahead of them. Then lowering mirror, yeah. So they had to lower mirror to just catch up. You know what I mean? Like that—that mm-hmm. that 13 kilometers distance was what is it as important as picking up that orbital velocity um, that they got? All right. Well, that's this week in spaceflight history. Um, next week is the 16th through the 22nd of March. David, do you have a clue for us? I do. And this clue, as well as the event itself, is brought to you by Chuba Dracozzi. So he will not be guessing next week, but mm-hmm. um, he made a great suggestion and I had to take it. Well, the clue I slightly modified. I think I made it a little bit better. This is next week in 2007. And the clue is this list goes up to 11, or at least it should. It's meant to be a Spinal Tap reference, but you know you don't have to know that. Uh, just know that the list goes up to 11, or at least it should, <laughs> or it should have, I guess you could say. I really like this clue. So that's your clue. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have a guess for what goes up to 11, go ahead and shoot us a tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Uh, we just got two Starlinks. What's the first Starlink? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So <laughs> your first Starlink of the week um, is on March 10th. That's Wednesday at uh, 0258 UTC. Uh, if you're listening to this show, the instant it gets uploaded, you have about like an hour and a half, two hours, depending on when it when it goes out. Not a lot of time. Yeah, I mean it's it's Starlink uh, launch twenty. Uh, there, not much more to say about it. <laughs> so if you missed that Starlink, then on <laughs> the thirteenth, just a couple of days later, you can watch another one. So the first one was launching from Slick Forty. So this is the other yeah. pad. So they're basically going yeah. back and forth between launch pads. Uh, this will be launching at ten oh six UTC or five oh six in the morning on the East Coast. So check that one out if you missed the first one. And if not, I'm sure there'll be another one the following week after that. Yeah, and hopefully, hopefully we'll get more footage of the. Uh, of the bars coming off of the stack, the deployment mechanism, because it's pretty cool that they release them all at once. And I was going to say you could watch the train, but obviously not not on that same day. But, you know, right. you can keep an eye out for those as well. All right. Uh, those are your upcoming Starlink events. All right. Let's do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at the Orbital 
www.overdomemechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links or Orbital Podcasts on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.